0: President Biden refusing to walk back his controversial comments that Putin cannot remain in power. The lead starts right now. Just moments ago, President Biden insisting the U.S. is not pushing for regime change in Russia, even though he does not think that Vladimir Putin should remain in charge. How much weight will Biden's words carry on the eve of so-called peace talks? Plus, a federal judge says former President Trump And one of his lawyers likely committed a crime by trying to stop the election process on January 6, 2021. So who decides if Trump will actually face charges? And Will Smith's show-stopping slap, hitting Chris Rock in the face after Rock joked about Jada Pinkett Smith. The heated meeting after the Oscars that could determine Will Smith's fate with the Academy.
1: This is CNN Breaking News.
0: Hello and welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin this hour with breaking news. President Biden insisting, quote, I'm not walking anything back. The President insisting he stands by his unscripted remarks that this weekend that Vladimir Putin, quote, cannot remain in power. Comments that were seen by many as calls for regime change in Russia. Here is Biden's explanation. The um
2: let me begin by saying that Young. You know, uh, you've heard me say this before. Land war or nuclear war with Russia, that's not part of it. I was expressing my outrage at the behavior of this man. It's outrageous. It's outrageous.
0: On the ground near the Ukrainian capital today, the mayor of Irpin says Ukrainian forces have, quote, freed that suburb from Russian invaders. The fighting and Russian bombing have intensified in and around Kyiv, as Russian forces attempt to create a corridor around the capital to block supply routes. In the southeast of the country, the mayor of Mariupol says they're, quote, in the hands of the occupiers. That city has been flattened by nonstop Russian bombing in a weeks-long siege by the Russians. Ukraine's military intelligence chief is warning that Putin could be trying to cleave Ukraine in two, perhaps similar to North and South Korea, possibly splitting into occupied Ukraine in the East and South and unoccupied Ukraine, free Ukraine. More on the ground in a moment, but let's start at the White House with CNN's Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, President Biden suggested that no one could have interpreted his remarks as calling for regime change.
3: Uh, of course, Jake, many people raised that question of whether or not that is what he was advocating for at the end of the speech. But today he says he is not walking back his statement that President Putin cannot remain in power. But, Jake, he also says he is not stating a new policy from the United States government, which, of course, officials in recent weeks have said they do not support regime change in Russia. That is up to the Russian people to make that decision, and the United States does not have a position on that. But, of course, it came into question after those nine words that President Biden said at the end of a very forceful speech in Warsaw. It came after a day where he had been meeting with Ukrainian refugees, the very people that Putin has forced from their homes in Ukraine. And instead, President Biden told us just a few moments ago that he was expressing his moral outrage at Putin's behavior.
2: I wasn't then nor am I now articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel and I make no apologies for it. The last part of the speech was talking to the Russian people, telling them what we thought. I was communicating this to not only the Russian people, but the whole world. This is this is just stating a simple fact that this kind of behavior is totally unacceptable, totally unacceptable. And the way to deal with it is to strengthen and and put uh, keep NATO completely united and help Ukraine where we can.
3: Jake, we should note that the French president was one of several leaders who had expressed some concern about maybe this being viewed as escalatory. The president told us that he does not believe this is going to affect any diplomatic efforts when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. And he also said he doesn't care if Putin views it as an escalatory move, which is notable, given that is something that the White House has sought to balance, confronting Putin while not provoking him. One other thing, though, Jake, that was also really interesting from that exchange is we asked President Biden whether or not he'd be willing to meet with President Putin again. Of course. They sat down in Geneva just last year. They've talked on the phone several times since then, but they have not spoken since this invasion began. However, Jake, he did not rule out meeting with President Putin, the person that he has called a war criminal and a pure thug. He said it depends on what Putin would want to talk about. Jake.
0: All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thank you so much. A new warning from Ukraine's military intelligence chief today, suggesting the Kremlin could be aiming to carve Ukraine down the middle. As CNN's Fred Pleitkin reports for us, Russian forces... Have been pummeling Kiev suburbs with a bombing campaign, a warning to viewers, this story contains some graphic images.
4: Kiev remains under full-on attack by Vladimir Putin's army, Ukrainian officials saying, "Russian forces are trying to storm the capital, but failing, unleashing artillery barrages on civilian areas in the process. We drove to the village Novi Petrivce, north of Kiev, only a few miles from the front line. Even the streets here are pockmarked with shrapnel and massive impact craters. Whole buildings laid to waste. I mean, just look at the utter destruction caused by this massive explosion. There's some really thick brick walls and even they were annihilated by the force of whatever landed here. The people here tell us they only felt one really large explosion and it wounded several people and killed a small child. That child was two-year-old Stepan, killed while in his bed when the house came under fire. These videos, given to us by local authorities, show the chaos in the aftermath. As the wounded appear in shock, residents and rescuers try to save those who were inside. Stepan pronounced dead on the scene. Stepan was Oleg Shpak's second youngest child. We found Oleg sifting through the rubble of his house days later. Inside, he shows me the damage caused by the explosion. He was at work when his home was hit. His wife, the other children, and his mother-in-law had already been brought to the hospital when he arrived at the house. Stepan couldn't be saved. And because of staff shortages at the morgue, Oleg had to prepare his son's body for burial himself.
5: I had to wash him, to dress him. His head from his right ear to his left ear, One large hematoma, his arms, his legs, a total hematoma not compatible with life. And besides that, lots of other wounds were discovered after death. Many other houses have also
4: been hit here. The police tell me the Russians shell the town every day. We bumped into 84-year-old Halina in the town center. She was a child when the Nazis invaded this area and says now things are worse.
6: Worse than fascists. When the Germans were here and entered our homes, they would shoot at the ceiling, but they would not touch us. They moved us into the woods, but they did not shoot us like the Russian soldiers are shooting now, killing children.
4: The Kremlin claims its forces don't target civilian areas, but the U.S., NATO, and the Ukrainians say the Russians are frustrated by their lack of progress and are firing longer-range weapons because they can't make headway on the ground.
7: They understand that, sooner or later, our troops will push them out of our territory. Now, the Russians are doing dirty tricks. They shoot more at civilian areas than at the positions of the Ukrainian army.
4: Ukraine's army says it's pressing its own counter-offensive, trying to dislodge Russian troops from the outskirts of Kiev. The Kremlin's forces, meanwhile, so far unable to take the Ukrainian capital, are instead laying waste to its suburbs. And, Jake, that was really the story of the day today once again, where we heard explosions the other day, air raid sirens also going on the entire day as well, and plumes of smoke, especially over the northwest of the Ukrainian capital. A spokesman for the Ukrainian army today said that the Russians were trying to advance in that area once again, trying to take streets and small villages, as he put it. He said so far the Ukrainians are able to confront them and hold them back. And, of course, the Ukrainians also saying they're continuing to try and press that counteroffensive to completely push the Russians out of this area. Jake?
0: All right, Fred Pleitkin reporting live from Kiev. Thank you. Please stay safe. Joining us live to discuss is Republican Congressman Mike McCall. He's the ranking Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. I want to start with the president uh, just Jake. a few minutes ago saying that his comments about Putin uh, and not wanting him to remain in power, he was just expressing his personal moral outrage, not a policy change. Uh, what is your response to that? You, you seem to suggest uh, yesterday with Dana Bash that he was being... Uh, needlessly uh, provocative in his original comments.
8: Right. And and listen, I, you know, I went down to the, uh, the border, Ukraine border, Poland, saw the refugees. I certainly understand the moral outrage uh, that the president must have felt in in his emotions uh, when he made that comment. But it seems like every time he goes off script, uh, he causes some international uh, incident here. Uh, and, And to, you know, When they say they don't want to be provocative by bringing in MiG jets, uh, and yet when he makes comments like these, they're very provocative uh, with respect to Putin, particularly on the heels of of these major negotiations that we think are going to be taking place uh, in in the next couple of days. So I don't think it was uh, very helpful. And and, and the sad fact is, Jake, it overshadowed uh, pretty much the entire NATO-EU G7 summit. This is all anybody's talking about.
0: Yeah, and you you agreed with the White House walk back uh, that regime change in in Russia, uh, which President Biden reiterated today, is up to the Russian people, not up to the American uh, leadership. Um, But I wonder about that, because if the Russians don't have free and fair elections, the Russian people, if Putin suppresses (laughs) and even kills those who push for reform, who push for democracy, is it really up to the Russian people? I mean, I'm not pushing for regime change here myself, but it really isn't up to them, is it? Well, Putin
8: is a dictator under this sort of false democracy. He does control the elections. Uh, You know, I predict, you know, we had Connelly Rice uh, uh, visit with her at our uh, retreat last weekend. And, you know, these body bags going home, Jake, I mean, 17 to 15,000 Russians killed Uh, And you multiply that by a a multiplier of three in terms of casualties. The mothers, when they see their sons coming home, this is more than they lost in Afghanistan in in their war against the Mujahideen. And it's far more than we lost in Iraq and Afghanistan over 20 years. I think this is going to have a profound impact on the Russian people. Uh, The oligarchs are obviously not very happy with Mr. Putin. And I feel uh, he thinks the world is circling in on him. And that's a positive thing. We want change, uh, you know, from within and with the Russian people rising up against this brutal war criminal.
0: Do you agree with President Biden when he made the comment that Vladimir Putin is a butcher? I do. I think he crossed
8: the line when he killed civilians, that when he bombed the maternity hospital, when he bombed the children's hospital uh, in Kiev, I've, I've actually helped facilitate getting these children out uh, of of uh, Ukraine into Poland and, and NATO ally countries, uh, and the thing I worry the most about Jake is, you know, what's going to come next? And we but we don't want to escalate the situation. Uh, if he's a scorpion backed in a corner and the stinger comes out, he has two options: one chemical and one of these short range tactical nukes. Uh, that would change; it would be a paradigm shift in this uh, competition, this conflict. Uh, that could extend it to a now a, a world power conflict.
0: There's another round of talks being held tomorrow in Istanbul between Russia and Ukraine. Is it worth it, do you think, for Ukraine to a- agree to a peace process if Zelensky has to cede the Donbas region and pledge that Ukraine will never join NATO? Is that worth it for peace?
8: Now, I really leave that to uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. This is their decision, not our decision or NATO's decision, or for that matter, it should be Putin's. I, I think uh, he has agreed that it would be okay uh, to be a neutral country, not a NATO power, uh, but I think the territorial disputes are gonna be the, the part that's gonna be very difficult for Zelensky to accept, especially after the, uh, the mass graves we've seen and, and the horror images we've seen on the television I think it'd be very difficult for him to see the Donbass, uh, for him to see uh, uh, Crimea in its entirety. Uh, he could talk about you know, no nuclear uh, uh, missiles in his country. Uh, this will be a very difficult decision. I agree with your analysts, though, that I think Putin's strategy right now is to divide East Ukraine versus West with the mm-hmm. Dnieper River right down the middle. Um, and I think Putin does want those two Donbass Independent separatist countries, as he calls them, and as Duma called them, he wants Mariupol, which is a breadbasket port, to control the Black Sea.
0: Mm -hmm. Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas, always good to see you. Thank you so much for your thoughts today. Coming up next, the inconceivable toll of this war on the Ukrainians who volunteered and stayed behind and fought for their country. Plus, she's the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She also shared text messages with the Trump White House, about overturning the 2020 election. And a meeting this evening could make Ginny Thomas front and center of the January 6th investigation. Stay with us. And our world lead Ukrainian officials say that at least 136 children have been killed and 199 wounded since Russia first invaded and began its brutal assault on the country and the Ukrainian people more than a month ago. And while CNN cannot independently verify those figures, authorities on the ground acknowledge the data is not conclusive and in fact could be much higher. CNN's Ben Wiedemann takes a closer look for us now at just some of the civilians-turned-resistance fighters who are now getting a soldier's funeral.
5: Lord, have mercy goes the hymn's refrain. Another family drinks of war's bitter dredges. 47-year-old Yuri Solemka died on the 18th of March from wounds sustained in the frontline city of Mykolaiv. His mother, Lyudmila, struggles through the ceremony. Every day there's another funeral during this time of death, destruction, and displacement. These are indeed the times that try a people's soul. Yuri was a volunteer, not a regular soldier. He was given full military honors. Beyond the customs of respect for a man who died in battle for a nation at war, lies the trauma of the woman who brought him into this world. There can be nothing more painful for a mother than to attend the funeral of her child. A son killed in a war, not of his choosing. He decided on his own to join the army, says Lyudmila. He hadn't told me. He was a good father and a good son says his sister, Yelena. He was always a man of his word. Yuri's lies with other freshly dug graves. After a month of this conflict, no one really knows how many soldiers and civilians have been killed. The only thing of which anyone can be certain is that only the dead have seen the end of war. Before this funeral ends, Preparations begin for the next. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And Jake, we're coming to you from the city of Mykolaiv, where Yuri was killed 10 days ago. And it was on this day in 1944 that Mykolaiv was liberated from the Nazis. But there were no com- commemorations today with a new war raging just outside this city. Jake?
0: Sobering Report, Ben Wiedemann and Mikolai of Ukraine, thank you, please stay safe. Coming up next, a judge says that the former president likely committed a crime in the run-up to January 6th and on that day, could this be trouble for Donald Trump? Plus, what we know about Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and an upcoming conversation he's gonna have with the January 6th committee. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a federal judge's ominous signal to Donald Trump and one of his top legal allies in the failed and unconstitutional attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The judge today writing that Trump and attorney John Eastman may have been planning a crime. Judge David Carter, a Clinton appointee, wrote, quote, based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. The judge also writing, quote, the illegality of the plan was obvious. Let's bring in attorney and CNN legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Now, Ellie, how big a deal is this? Because just to be clear, the ruling was not about charging Trump with a crime.
9: Right, Jake. First things first. This is not an indictment. This does not ensure there will be an indictment. Still, though, this is a remarkable and really unprecedented ruling. The dispute here was the committee was trying to get certain emails between this lawyer, John Eastman, Donald Trump. Eastman said, can't have them. They're protected by attorney-client privilege. The committee argued, no, we get them because of what's called the crime-fraud exception, because they're evidence of an ongoing crime. And this is the remarkable part. The judge said, I agree. I find more likely than not that the president of the United States committed multiple federal crimes relating to the coup attempt. That is really something we've never seen before from a federal judge.
0: Yeah, there's no attorney-client privilege if they're conspiring together to commit a crime. So who will decide if Trump will be charged with a crime, and does this judge's opinion in this matter impact that at all?
9: No, it does not. So this decision comes down to the United States Department of Justice and ultimately, really one person, Merrick Garland. Important to know also, this judge made his ruling, but more likely than not, what we call a preponderance of the evidence. That's here in terms of legal standards. In order to charge a a crime, a prosecutor has to show proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a much higher standard. That's a much different story. But This decision will up the pressure, the political pressure, on DOJ to take meaningful action.
0: We're also learning uh, that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is expected to speak with the January 6th committee uh, this week. What what might the committee learn from him?
9: So he could be a really interesting witness, Jake, because Jared Kushner likes to position himself as sort of the grown-up in the room. I'll leave that to people's determinations whether that's true or not. But he was at a bit of a remove from January 6th physically and otherwise. And so if he's willing to be forthcoming, perhaps he can give his perspective as sort of a sane-minded outsider. But let's also remember, Ivanka Trump, she was right next to Donald Trump this whole time. They've asked her for her testimony. She sort of brushed off the committee. They need to subpoena her if she doesn't talk to them voluntarily, because she has direct, crucial information.
0: And lastly, uh, quickly, if you could, the January 6th committee wants to ask Virginia Thomas, she's the, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, about her text messages with then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, which Meadows Handed over to the committee before he stopped cooperating with them. Yeah. Uh, we're told the committee members are going to meet privately this evening to discuss what to do about uh, Jenny Thomas. Uh, what do you make of this?
9: This is not a tangent. This is not some sideshow at all. This is right down the heart of what the committee needs to be looking at. These texts really are game changers. They show us we've known that Jenny Thomas has these sort of extreme political views. That's fine. She's entitled. But those texts show us that she was urging Mark Meadow is a very powerful person to take action to bring this coup into effect. That's crucial. That's right down the heart of what the committee needs to look at.
0: All right, Ellie Hunnic, thank you so much. You. Really appreciate it. Coming up ahead, signs of relief after paying higher gas prices for weeks now. But how long might this respite last? Stay with us. You can try to look. On the bright side, in our money lead today, it seems safe to say gasoline prices have stabilized at least for now. AAA puts the national average at just under $4.25 a gallon, the same as last week. Eight cents less than the all-time high earlier this month. Still, a gallon of gas in the U.S. is about $1.39 more than at this time last year. And stable or not, that hurts. It's also one of the reasons why President Biden's approval rating is only 40% in a recent CNN poll Of polls. Let's talk about pocketbook issues and more with CNN's Richard Quest. Uh, Richard, good to see you. Inflation already was a concern before Putin invaded Ukraine and the resulting sanctions sent oil prices way up. Where do you think things are likely to go from here?
10: Well, they've stabilized and they've come down a bit because Shanghai is going into lockdown. So China's demand, if you will, for oil for production is not going to be that great. But there's one thing, Jake, you've got to remember with oil. The first whiff of further trouble, the first scintilla of possibility of supply problems, and that price will go back up again. So any respite that you're seeing now, any little bit of breathing room, take it while it's there, because it literally could go tomorrow. Oil prices are that volatile.
0: Higher fuel prices not only are affecting day-to-day life, it has people rethinking their plans for summer travel. What sort of ripple effects might that have?
10: Every bit of the economy. So you're going to have higher food prices. We already know that uh, manufacturers, food manufacturers, growers, fertilizer. Let's take one example. Fertilizer from Ukraine that can no longer be easily exported. The price goes up, therefore the food chain becomes more expensive. Hotels, fuel surcharges on airlines. I'm not trying to paint paint an unduly depressing picture as such. But what I'm trying to do, Jake, is give you a realistic view. The economy is in transition at the moment because of this war and the the higher oil prices, supply chain problems left over from the pandemic, along with a pandemic that is still very relevant in many parts of the world. That's why we're going to have difficult economic times in the United States and in Europe.
0: We we, we want you to to give it to us straight, Richard. No one's one's asking you to, to hold back. And on that subject, yeah. later this week, we're due to get some new readings on inflation yeah. and jobs and unemployment. Are you yeah. anticipating another round of gloomy headlines?
10: Oh, yes. Yes. Look, the Fed has two jobs, or one job and two things. It balances full employment with price stability. Those are the dual, that's the dual mandate. Now, at the moment, unemployment is not really the big issue, but inflation is. So we know we're going to get five, six, maybe more interest rate rises this year. This is despite the fact that the economy is, to some extent, slowing down already. Uh, It's going to be difficult. It's a time for saving if you can. It's a time for watching the pennies if you can.
0: All right, Richard Quest, thanks so much. Always good to see you. Coming up next, that show-stopping slap at the Oscars. The response from the Academy and beyond after Will Smith's violent confrontation with Chris Rock, plus what police say about possible charges against the actor. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead, the Oscars moment that has everyone talking but not for the right reasons. It overshadowed an otherwise historic night for the awards. The Academy announcing late today that they are launching a formal review into Will Smith's conduct at the Oscars last night after he walked on stage and slapped Chris Rock across the face after the comedian had told the joke about, Chris, about uh, Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith's hair. She suffers from alopecia. About 40 minutes later, Smith won the Best Actor Oscar Award. CNN's Stephanie Elam was at the Oscars and reports on how the Academy Awards are responding to a shocking incident.
11: A slap to the jaw that had jaws dropping all around the world. And today, CNN has learned from two sources, at least a dozen Academy members, including actors and directors, held their own meeting on whether more should be done. This after Will Smith confronted Chris Rock on stage for a joke about Smith's wife. Jada, I love you. GI Jane too. Can't wait to see it. At first, Smith appeared to laugh, but watch Jada at Smith's face. Their mood changes as the joke sinks in. Oh
5: wow,
12: wow. Will Smith just smacked. His <laughs> <me. laughs> oh, name out. No. <laughs> wow, dude. Yeah, It was a
11: G.I. Jane joke. The Dolby Theater crowd stunned. Denzel Washington and others stepped in to counsel Smith as Sean Combs called for calm.
12: Okay, Will and Chris, we're going to solve that like family at the
11: gold party. Rock's words, a reference to the head-shaven character from 1997's G.I. Jane. Over the years, though, Pinkett Smith has spoken publicly about her struggles with alopecia.
2: Look at this line right here.
11: An autoimmune disease that causes hair loss. It's unclear if Rock knew this when he made the comment on stage. Black hair! Ironically, he directed a 2009 documentary about the struggles of accepting black hair in its natural form.
12: Will Smith!
11: When Smith won Best Actor later in the night, the world waited to hear what he would say.
12: I want to apologize to the Academy. I want to apologize to all my fellow nominees. Art imitates life. I look like the crazy father, just like they said.
11: Obviously missing from his apologies? Chris Rock. LAPD says Rock declined to file a police report, so there's no assault case. The Academy later tweeted that it does not condone violence of any form and today announced a formal review to explore further action and consequences. While some on Twitter sympathize with Smith, others question whether he should have been allowed to accept his award at all.
13: They should have explained that he wasn't allowed to do it because he attacked someone uh, during uh, the uh, the ceremony.
11: After the show, Smith carried on into the Hollywood night. Dancing to one of his own songs, Oscar in hand, at the Vanity Fair after party. Now, the Academy does have to figure out how they're going to respond to this, because as things stand, Will Smith should be on the Oscar stage next year because he won Best Actor. That winner always presents Best Actress the following year. So they have to figure out how they're going to do this. Also feel sorry for Quest Love, another person from Philadelphia who won the award right after that all happened. And I think most of the people there couldn't even digest it because they were all still caught up in the slap. Jake.
0: Yeah, Stephanie Elam, thanks so much. Let's discuss with Jamel Hill and Carrie Champion, they're the hosts of Carrie and Jamel Speakeasy, available soon on CNN Plus, which launches uh, tomorrow. Okay, first of all, I just need to know what was your reaction? What do you think?
14: Well, I know you were flying. I was. I was flying
15: here to New York. Yeah. And when I was able to cut my phone on, I had 653 text (laughs) messages. And that is not hyperbole, Jake. That's true. I believe you. Half of them were probably from you, but
14: (laughs) correct. Just like, did you see this? What is going on?
0: So, one of the things that you and I have, uh, maybe you did too, I I, I listened to the Will Smith uh, autobiography, Will, which is really good. But one of the things you get from that book is this is a guy who has. Mm -hmm. To this day, whether or not he realizes it, a lot of pain from his very unhappy childhood with an abusive father, and he always felt guilty about not standing up for his mother. I'm not excusing anything, anything at all, and I know you guys aren't either, but just trying to understand.
14: Well, you're, you're talking contextually, and so I think Jay and I have had this conversation so many times. This story is so layered, and I tweeted this earlier. There is not one person who is right and one person who is wrong, and so many times we want to take sides. And it's just not that simple with this case. I did read the book. I did feel as if he was, and I'm not a psychologist, but you're right. There was a lot of trauma there. And for him to look over at his wife, I'm not a man, but for a man to look over at his wife and see her pain and be at their breaking point, because let's look at his long career. Will for for better or for worse, has not done anything incorrect in his career. No, Very few missteps, right, when it comes to Will Smith.
0: Not that we know of. Yeah. Not
14: that we know of. Right. So when you see someone who has been the butt of jokes for a very long time, because of even when he was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, born and raised in Philly, like his raps were always considered, when he was a rapper, he was considered one of the good guys, if you will. And therefore, sometimes when you're considered the good guy, they make fun of you. And I, th- I think what we saw last night, and I'm not even joking, is a man who was at his breaking point for a lot of reasons.
0: Yeah. And, and, and yeah. one of the, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, uh, yes. uh, Who I believe also suffers from alopecia. I believe yes. she does. Uh, and she immediately posted and then deleted uh, something uh, that said, thank you, Will Smith. Shout out to all the husbands who defend their wives living with alopecia in the face of daily ignorance and insult. She since uh, deleted the tweet and talked about the importance of nonviolence and how she obviously doesn't. Advocate violence. And again, nobody is saying that it was OK to slap Chris Rock in the face. Nobody is saying that. But uh, obviously for Congresswoman Presley, she has spent years now being mocked and derided. And, and she felt for Jada Pinkett Smith.
15: And not only that, Jake, you have to actually understand this on an even deeper level than that. For black women, we just watched confirmation hearings with Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. Right. We just saw everything that she went through, saw how she was. You know, really lambasted in the public eye, yep. and we saw all the things that she had to deal with, and she was, um, you know, she was often lauded for keeping cool and collected. Sometimes when things happen, people don't feel that way, and I think for black women in particular, because I saw what Tiffany Haddish said as well, where she yeah. said that she felt um, she felt very uh, encouraged, if you will, by the fact that Will Smith, in this very public setting, was standing up for his black wife, right, and. That's a protection that black women often aren't afforded. And like you said, it was obviously wrong. Chris Rock shouldn't have told the joke. Will Smith's response can't be to go up and slap another man in public at the Oscars. And can you
0: imagine if every time a comedian told a joke about somebody in the audience at yeah. the Oscars, they had the right to go up and hit them? Yeah, like yeah,
14: that, that can't but happen. That but will, and by the way, that would never happen. This is a rare incident. Very rare. And more importantly... But there are comedians
0: who are afraid now that this is going to set... Kathy well, Griffin said this is... Now comedians are going to be afraid. I, I, I don't, don't buy I it. think so. I don't buy okay. it. Okay.
14: I, I disagree. I think the people who are in here are saying that... It was an assault, but those who are calling for his arrest saying his Oscar should be taken away... I said the Academy is not in the business to decide whose sin is greater. If you start, if you take his Oscar away, then you have to start looking at everyone who's done something wrong. Who's ev- who, Everyone who has won an Academy at an Oscar, you have to look at what they've done as well. If you decide this is the moment. Keep in mind, Harvey Weinstein still has all of his. <laughs> keep going. Uh, <laughs> Robert Polanski, keep Mel
15: Gibson, Bill Cosby, you all don't still the members of we the We don't
14: want to even open up that, yeah. uh, that can of worms. No. But the reality is there's no one who wins here. It was a sad night because I think will quite frankly, is probably harder on himself today than we will ever be. In well, of I
0: don't know. So this. here's the thing. So um, one of the couple's children, uh, Jaden, on Twitter last night, right, and that's how we do it. Now, obviously, they have a very strong family union unit, and I, I can certainly understand. He's a kid. Well, he's 23, but okay. He's still a kid. So tell me, Carrie, how, how, do, we, how do we get past this? Obviously, Will Smith needs to apologize to Chris Rock, right? I mean, he hit him in the face.
14: 100%. And I think... Everyone knows this who has any type of insight on this. They will have a sit-down. But there's a history here that we're not even talking about. I do believe that there's a relationship that's tight and tense because he's tired. He made a joke. Chris Rock made a joke about Jada when there was a campaign that says Oscar's so white. And he said, why is Jada, he being Chris Rock, said, why is Jada weighing in? We don't care if she comes. It doesn't matter, essentially, That's the clean version. That's the clean version. (laughs) I appreciate not making a reference to Rihanna. No Rihanna Rihanna here. But the reality is is that he was tired. I'm not excusing his behavior. I think everyone has fault in this. I do believe there's a lot of layers and nuance that we're not even considering, nor do we have the time to get in. What does Will
0: Smith need to do?
15: Uh, I think Will Smith... probably publicly needs to say something. I wouldn't be surprised if this is another episode of Red Table Talk, if you will, since they've been so uh, transparent, the show that that Jada hosts. And so they've been very transparent before about issues they face. And so I I do think that he needs to say something. If the Academy is going to go so far as to look into action, okay, fine. Don't have him present next year. But as Kerry said, to take away his Oscar is just ridiculous. It's asinine. It it is completely ridiculous. I mean, I, I think he can make amends for this, but I do think it's important that people see this in context. Realize that will. People play Will like he's soft. Exactly. That's how he's been. And what do you mean by that
14: when you say they play him as he's Because songs, as you
15: mentioned, when he was a, uh, he was the first hip hop artist to win a Grammy. Yeah. And in a time of the boom of gangster rap, he's winning for parents that just don't understand. Right. Right? And so there's.
0: Because people he thought was, he was soft because he wasn't cursing. He wasn't talking about. Exactly. Dealing he, he drugs was, right? or He was. women. The summer. All Let's that. hang
15: and out. And <laughs> we, we have heard about their marital issues before. Yeah. They've been brought to light. And people have made him memes, the butt of yeah. jokes. Yeah. And. Frankly, he probably just got to a point where he's like,
0: I'm tired. I could do this all day, but I have to take a commercial break. Thank you so much. Why, Don't forget. Jake? Why, Jamel, Jake? because I have to pay the bills. Jamel, oh, yeah. Jamel Hill <laughs> yes. and Carrie Champion. Thank you so much. Again, their new show is going to be called Carrie and Jamel Speakeasy on CNN Plus, the streaming service debuts tonight at midnight Eastern Time. We're less than 24 hours away. You can learn much more at CNN Plus. I know I'm going to be watching. Thank Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Coming up, as Ukrainian refugees flood neighboring countries, leaders in Poland warn that taking on more people will be a challenge. How they're trying to make sure no one is turned away from that country. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a look at how nearly 400 acres in Los Angeles County, given to homeless veterans in the late 1800s, became the site of an athletic center for an elite private school. This while thousands of veterans are currently sleeping on Los Angeles' streets. Plus, a federal judge going further than any other judge as of now, saying it's more than likely that Trump's attempt to block the certification of the election was a crime. What might this mean for the January 6th committee or for Attorney General Merrick Garland? And leading this hour, relentless Russian airstrikes continuing even with just hours to go before representatives from both Russia and Ukraine are set to meet for talks in Turkey. Let's get right to CNN's Ivan Watson, who's live in the southeast city of Zaporizhia, Ukraine. And Ivan, after five weeks of Russian attacks, Ukrainian President Zelensky, he says he's ready to discuss a pledge to keep out of NATO and assume a neutral stance. What might that look like? How will the Ukrainian people receive it?
12: Well, I mean, he also couched that by saying that if if uh, Ukraine was to move in that direction, that it would need a popular referendum, that the citizens of Ukraine would have to vote for it. Uh, but that that would also have to wait for Russian occupying troops to leave Ukrainian territory. And that opens up a whole different can of worms, which is... Uh, Crimea, which uh, Russia grabbed in 2014 and later annexed, and then these two breakaway regions, which uh, the Russian government uh, recognized their independent status uh, in the early days of this more recent conflict. Uh, another sticking point is that Zelensky has said he will not discuss with the Russians two of their pretexts for this unprovoked invasion, which they say is Demilitarization and denazification. He says that that's basically those are ridiculous concepts that don't really apply to Ukraine, and so no negotiations can be uh, can move forward if the Russians are going to stick to those two ideas. Jay.
0: Ivan, what exactly are residents facing in the southern part of Ukraine?
12: Oh, I mean. Especially in that port city of Mariupol, the, the, the conditions are absolutely abominable. It is a modern day siege, and this city is one of the unofficial gateways for thousands of people who are fleeing uh, that besieged city that make a dangerous journey. They are traumatized and shell shocked when they arrived, and I've been talking with some of these new arrivals. Shattered by Russian artillery the windshield of a car that a Ukrainian family used to make their two-day escape from the besieged port city of Mariupol. We meet Natalia shortly after her family reaches relative safety in the parking lot of a superstore on the edge of the Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia. The day before yesterday, an artillery shell hit our house, she says. Half of the house is gone. This is what was left.
3: If Russia sees this, I want them
16: to know that they aren't defending us. They are killing us because they seem to think they're defending us, and that's just not true.
12: This parking lot, an unofficial gateway to Ukrainian-controlled territory for more than 70,000 Ukrainians who officials say fled Mariupol. The evacuees look shell-shocked. They arrive in vehicles draped with white rags and signs that say children, children. And some, like four-year-old Alisa Isaeva, show up in yellow school buses. They were bombing us, she says. Bombing us with planes and tanks. Alisa's aunt Lilia says she suffered from a concussion for days after a strike hit her home.
11: We walked among corpses. There were bodies under the evergreens, soldiers without heads without arms, they're lying there. Nobody is gathering them. There was such fear that I felt like I was underwater. I wanted to wake up. And now I'm here, and this feels like some kind of a dream.
12: Inside the superstore, volunteers and the city government are trying to help. Newly arrived evacuees are welcomed at this support center where they're offered warm meals, access to medics, and information about how to travel deeper into safer parts of Ukrainian territory. There's also a bulletin board here where some people are offering free repair of shattered car windows. And there are also postings here uh, looking for information about missing loved ones. For some who survived Russia's modern day siege, this is the first hint of safety they've had in weeks. Outside, Yulia Mishodova and her son Stanislav have just arrived. Stanislav is chatty and upbeat, but his mother appears unsteady. When Russian warplanes bombed, she says, the family hid under the dining room table, surrounded by pillows.
16: When the plane flew past, we were sheltering in the center of town. Until now, my ear still hurts from
17: the shockwave.
12: The unlikely safe haven provided in this parking lot is precarious. Ukrainian officials say Russian troops are positioned barely a half hour's drive away from here. Now, Jake, the mayor of Mariupol, he says that there's an estimated 160,000 civilians still in the shattered city. He's calling for a complete evacuation of those people. But he accuses the Russian military of not allowing people to leave with buses that the Ukrainian government has organized for that. As for the city's defenders, we are in touch with them. They still control a part of Mariupol and they say they are still fighting every hour and every day.
0: All right, Ivan Watson in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. Let's discuss all of this with the former CIA chief of Russia operations, Steve Hall, former United States ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, and CNN global affairs analyst, Susan Glasser. And, Steve, let me start with you. Um, today, uh, President Biden said that he's going to stand by comments he made over the weekend when he said of Putin, for God's sake. This man cannot remain in power. Um, Some people in the international community, especially uh, the president of France, thought that might send uh, an escalatory message of possibly regime change. Here's what President Biden had to say today.
2: I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel, and I make no apologies for it. The last part of the speech was talking to the Russian people, telling them what we thought. I was communicating this to not only the Russian people, but the whole world. This is, this is just stating a simple fact that this kind of behavior is totally unacceptable, totally unacceptable. And the way to deal with it is to strengthen and, and put, uh, keep NATO completely united and help Ukraine where we can.
0: So what do you make of all this? What do you think this, this statement will, what Biden said over the weekend, will have an effect on international affairs, on Putin?
13: I don't think, Jake, that it'll have an effect on Putin, largely because Putin makes up his mind about these things and indeed has made up his mind about whether or not the United States actually wants regime change. Long ago, when I served in Moscow back in 2000, early part of 2010, uh, you know, during the Barotny protests, we spoke to Russians on the streets there and they said, oh yes, Hillary Clinton, no doubt, is behind uh, this and they want regime change. So this comment is, is spoken out of a sense of, of moral outrage and to be, tr- to be truthful about it, it's absolutely correct. There, there, is, there is no doubt that somebody like Vladimir Putin shouldn't be in charge of any country. And so the idea that this is going to complicate things somehow, I, I don't understand how exactly it would because I don't think it complicates anything in the Kremlin.
0: And Ambassador Taylor, Ukraine's military intelligence head said that Russian President Vladimir Putin could be looking to carve Ukraine into two, like North and South Korea, uh, occupied Ukraine, maybe to the south and east, uh, free Ukraine to the west. Do Biden's comments about who should be in power embolden Putin in any way? Do you think,
18: Jake? I don't think so. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that uh, that those comments had anything anything to do with the decision to try to uh, to carve out a part of Ukraine. Um, you know, Putin carved out a part of Ukraine uh, in 2014 when he first invaded. He carved out uh, Crimea. He carved out a, a place we called Donbas. Um, and if that's what they're going back to, that's a, actually a reduction in what they had planned to do. Uh, but that was uh, that was an early effort. And, and that's uh, if they're going back to that now, that probably reflects the problems that they're having on the battlefield. That probably reflects the problem. Ukrainian military has really bloodied the Russian military. And of course, Ukraine's fighting. Ukrainian military is fighting for its own land, uh, its, its own people, its own freedom. So if uh, Putin is going to go back to just the, you know, uh, Donbass and, uh, and Crimea, you know, that I think has nothing to do with anything that Biden said. And,
0: and, and soon, uh, President Biden was asked uh, if he thinks that Putin might view his remark as escalatory. He said he didn't care. What do you think about that?
3: Well,
17: look, I think Biden is embracing he's he's used increasingly strong language in recent weeks. Right. So it wasn't just this comment the other day. He's said that Putin essentially is a war criminal. Uh, he's a brutal dictator. And so this is of a piece, this comment with where we've seen President Biden go, I think it reflects, first of all, Jake, uh, a sense that there is very little to be gained right now in terms of negotiations with the Russians. That is not the comment of an American president who believes uh, that he's going to be talking with the Russian leadership anytime soon or actually settling this war. So that's one takeaway I have from it. But also to Ambassador Taylor's point, look, Russia is talking about pulling back to the Donbass because they have failed in the first month of this invasion to accomplish any of putin's strategic objectives and you know the the scary part is that i don't think these negotiations right now with ukraine uh seem to have much uh, going for them until putin can come up with some way of claiming victory and if that's gobbling up another piece of ukraine the fear is how does nato and how does president biden stop him from just thinking he can gobble it up in bits and pieces going forward
0: Yeah, And Steve, uh, President Zelensky, president of Ukraine, said over the weekend he gave a round of interviews to some of Russia's most prominent independent uh, journalists. Zelensky told them he's ready to give Putin some of what he wants to keep Ukraine uh, neutral, not a member of NATO, to keep it non-nuclear. And he said he'd he'd engage in a serious treaty. Will that be enough for Putin or will Putin demand more, including seizing the Donbass region, as Susan just talked about? Yeah, we'll see, Jake. It's really
13: interesting because Finland actually historically faced a similar situation in about 1939 where the Russians invaded. And basically at the end of the invasion, the Russians said, look, you give us a big chunk of your your country, Finland, and we'll let the rest of it remain a state. So if that's kind of what Putin is thinking is going to happen again, uh, it'll be interesting to see. Zelensky has basically right now said, no, it's got to go to a referendum and the territorial integrity is very important. So that's where the negotiations are going to start. Where they end up, it'll be really
0: interesting to see. I believe there was a Soviet leader at that time named Molotov, right? (laughs) Is that where that comes from? Uh, Steve, Susan, and Bill, thanks to all of you. Really appreciate it. What is it like to be one of the millions of Ukrainian children running from war, forced to leave your home and leave your parents, especially your fathers, behind? And what if you're too young to understand what's going on? That story next. Sticking with our world lead, Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine has turned nearly 4 million Ukrainians into refugees in a little over just a month. Half of those forced to escape to Europe are children, according to an EU official today. But just getting out, crossing into the countries that border Ukraine, that's only the first step. And then come the fears about where these refugees, especially the children, will go next. CNN's Kyung La reports for us now from Poland which has taken in more refugees than any other of Ukraine's
16: neighbors. (laughs) Nothing can help five-year-old Jan understand how he and his mother ended up here, a packed convention hall in Warsaw, Poland, filled with thousands of Ukrainians. He's constantly <laughs> afraid. He's always afraid. He's afraid to sleep alone, says his mother, Katya Krush, after nights in this basement, as Russian missiles leveled his neighborhood two hours north of Kiev. Everything is fine, she tells him. When you, are you sure there's nothing flying
5: here, he asks. They even don't know why they are here. They think... Uh, Maybe they came for some kind of vacation or it's...
16: They don't comprehend yeah. because they're too young. Yeah, too young. Multiply yan by thousands of people a day, and that's who Tomasz Shepua is trying to help at what's now the largest Ukrainian refugee hub in all of Europe, with up to 7,000 refugees Everybody. here a day.
5: I must work, you know, and I, I, I don't have to think about such a things too much because... It's 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 really difficult and it's it's a tragedy. You'll see. That's that's. It's better not to think about that.
16: The 1.5 million square foot expo is now a gateway to the rest of the world, where, after crossing into Poland, refugees begin the real process, of finding a temporary life beyond war.
5: They're waiting to go somewhere.
16: Estonia,
5: they're getting to Estonia.
16: Those with no destination yet wait. How
5: Pretty long fast. has this been going on? It's uh, less than a month.
16: Less than a month. That becomes more challenging as the war stretches on. Thank you Warsaw, says this woman in Ukrainian. One of the more than two million Ukrainian refugees who have arrived in Poland. More than 300,000
5: in Warsaw alone the polish people will welcome ukrainians whatever happens because they are fighting for our freedom and we do understand that but of course there is a certain limit human limit uh, what we can what we can do when you say you're at capacity what do you mean we've offered as a country free education free healthcare to all of our guests which of course means that you know our schools uh, are going to be filled within weeks that our hospitals are going to jam
16: uh, warsaw's mayor says no one will be turned away but he needs help to help Jan, his mother, and the people of Ukraine. The Polish people accepted us well, she says. Good people. <laughs> good people. Yeah, good people. He says the kind of help that he needs is some sort of official system between the Polish national government and European and international allies that connects all of this, Jake. And he left us with this one astonishing statistic. He said there are now 30% more school-aged children in his city than there were just a month ago. Jake?
0: Astounding. Kung law for us in Warsaw, Poland. Thank you so much for that report. Will Senator Mitt Mitram- Romney be one of the few, or maybe the only Republican senator, to vote in support of Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. The exclusive interview with Mitt Romney, next. And we're back with our politics lead. Former President Trump, quote, more likely than not, unquote, committed a crime when he tried to obstruct the certification of the presidential election on January 6, 2021, That unusually bold statement was issued by federal judge David Carter today. Carter says Trump's lawyer, John Eastman, was also culpable. And now Eastman's emails, which laid out a blueprint for an unconstitutional attempt to overturn the election, are heading over to the January 6th committee. Joining me now to discuss, New York Times' Maggie Haberman and CNN Plus's Casey Hunt. So, Maggie, let me start with you. Judge Carter went on to say, quote, the illegality of the plan was obvious. Uh, Trump has already avoided full impeachment and removal Twice, how big a deal of this is this actually?
6: It, it, it's a big deal and it isn't quite what it looks like, Jake. It's not an indictment. This is not coming from the Justice Department. But this is, you know, an external uh, person. This is a judge. This is somebody making a very declarative statement about what this meant. And so, to the extent that we are seeing the Justice Department facing pressure from outside points, I do think that it's significant. Whether it's going to result in anything, we don't know. But this is the clearest that anyone has been, anyone in a real position of such seniority and authority to say this was wrong. This was. It. There's a key quote in there about it being a coup in search of a legal argument. That's a pretty damning statement.
0: Yeah, and there's a difference between a Democratic senator saying it or, or right. a pundit saying it and a judge, That's a federal right. judge. Exactly. And Casey, neither the judge nor the January 6th committee is actually able to prosecute Trump and his allies or anyone else. That's just not in their powers. Right. Does President Biden need to tread lightly uh, in when it comes to Attorney General Merrick Garland and whether or not he decides to pursue Trump in a prosecution, especially before a 2024 election?
19: Well, I don't know about Biden needing to tread lightly. I feel like President Biden has been pretty clear in saying that he wants it to be very obvious that the Department of Justice is an independent operation. I think that's been one of the things and one of the places where he wanted to make the clearest of breaks with the Trump administration mm-hmm. and the way uh, they operated. And Merrick Garland, I think, frankly, has generated some frustration on the left yeah. by his, uh, you know, caution and, and deliberate carefulness in handling all sorts of these kinds of issues. Um, so I think you're going to likely see that continue.
0: Yeah, and Maggie, in more January 6 news, a source tells CNN that Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner is going to appear before the committee this week, the January 6 uh, House Committee. Um, what do you what do you make of this? As as I recall, he spent a lot of that post-presidential time trying to achieve the Abraham Accords, which probably would have gotten a lot more attention if. President Trump wasn't trying to subvert the Constitution.
6: Right, and trying to end the uh, the blockade of uh, Qatar in, uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, he was not around on January 6th until the afternoon. He was basically removed, as you say, when a lot of this was going on. But he certainly... I think may have been more aware of it, or at least as background noise. He certainly could speak to the state of mind that his father-in-law was in. And so I think the committee is going to look for that from him. But in terms of whether they're going to get a whole lot of engagement on, you know, the the sort of secret plan, for lack of a better way of putting it, that they're looking for here as existing in the lead up to January 6th, I don't think from what our reporting shows that Jared Kushner has a ton of information.
0: Yeah. And Casey, let's turn to the Supreme Court because West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says he's a yes for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation, which basically guarantees she will be uh, confirmed. You sat down with an exclusive interview with Republican Senator Mitt Romney from Utah on his vote for your new CNN Plus show. CNN Plus is our new streaming service. It launches at midnight Eastern this evening. Uh, let's take a quick look.
19: What was behind your, your colleagues in the way that they questioned her?
7: Well, uh, some colleagues. Uh, um, my side of the aisle, I thought, asked respectful questions and were able to uh, uh, elicit responses from her that I think were very helpful to uh, those that are making an evaluation. I thought some were uh, preparing for their presidential campaign uh, and were, uh, if you will, doing the things you have to do to get on TV, uh, and, uh, uh, which I think is unfortunate. I, I, I think any setting like this that doesn't show respect for the, the witness, or in this case, the judge, uh, is, uh, is, is not the right way for us to go. We, we, we should show, in my opinion, more respect for one another. Um, and uh, uh, so sometimes the, the rhetoric was a little hot, But uh, I think in the final analysis, we'll each be able to make our our decision based upon our personal interviews with Judge Jackson and with the results that come from these hearings.
19: Have you made up your mind about how you're going to vote? I know you voted against her confirmation to her current post.
7: Yeah, I I have uh, begun a deeper dive, a much deeper dive than I had uh, during the prior evaluation. And um, uh, in in this case as well, she's gone into much more depth talking about her judicial philosophy than she had before. And we're, of course, looking at her judicial record uh, as a district judge and as an appellate judge uh, in far more depth than than, uh, we had before. So I'll complete that analysis and then reach a decision. But I've not reached my decision. Do you think he's leaning
0: one way or the other? Well,
19: Jake, um, it's, it's very interesting. I've covered Mitt Romney for a lot of years, and he is uh, very um, focused on being on public decency, so to speak. So I thought it was interesting that he w- said what he said about his colleagues. Uh, while he was kind of gentle in his criticism for Mitt Romney, that's a pretty high level um, of offense. And I, I think yeah, for that... The, for
0: those who don't speak Romney, <laughs> that is that is foul language. Yes, that exactly. Is, that is a stern rebuke.
19: Um, he would not use the same words that Ben Sass used, because that would be swearing, and that's not a thing right. that Mitt Romney does in public. But yeah. um, he, I think, clearly was offended um, by what happened in the Judiciary Committee. I, I think it is entirely possible, um, and just based on kind of reading the, the way he approached this um, with me, that he will vote yes for Katanji Brown-Jackson. I also think it's entirely possible he sticks with his party with Mitch McConnell and votes no. What I think is... Potentially at the center of this is civil rights and the advancement of African Americans. I think the idea for him of voting against the first African American woman to be appointed to the Supreme Court might stand a little bit at odds with some of the things that he takes the most pride in, particularly his father's legacy on civil rights. George Romney uh, had a legacy on civil rights. And as a Mormon, I think uh, Mitt Romney is very acutely aware of what it's like to be a minority and to. Uh, try and advance and protect the rights of minorities. So that's what I'm going to be looking at as he tries to make this decision. And I think it, it was part two of uh, some of the offense that he described as, as to how she was treated in the
0: uh, One of the things that's interesting, there used to be an era uh, not that long ago uh, when you would vote for somebody for Supreme Court, if they were qualified, having nothing to do with whether or not you agreed with their politics or their judicial philosophy— mm-hmm. I'm not I have no idea what Senator Romney's going to do, but I could see him longing for those days where he could vote for a liberal justice mm-hmm. uh, the way the conservatives used to vote for liberal justices and vice versa.
6: Jake, I think that's right. I could certainly see him longing for those days. I think he frankly probably does long for those days, but whether he is going to go with that, you know, as a, as a bit of hope and, and, and go ahead with it. I think remains to be seen. I think that you are seeing a country that is pretty split down the middle, and you are seeing all the institutions uh, heading that way in, in one direction or the other.
0: All right. It's so great to see both of you, and I'm so excited about your new show. <laughs>
6: Thank you, Jake. I'm excited about the
19: book club, oh, also, the book, also on yeah, CNN+. Okay, yeah, we'll <laughs>
0: talk about that <laughs> another time. But go, Maggie Haberman, you can read her in the Times, of course, and, and uh, catch Casey's full interview with Senator Mitt Romney. That's tomorrow, the official launch of CNN+. Plus. That's our new streaming service. The Source with Casey Hunt streams live at 4 p.m. Monday through Friday on CNN Plus will always be available on demand on that service, CNN Plus. Coming up, the new policies that sparked this grocery store, panic and chaos in China. That's next. And our health lead, you're watching social media videos right now of panic and chaos at a Shanghai grocery store on Sunday after Chinese authorities announced a new two-phased COVID lockdown in that city. Shanghai. Shanghai is now the epicenter of China's worst COVID outbreak in two years with a record 3,500 cases reported Sunday. We don't know how many hospitalizations or deaths. Dr. Peter Hotez joins us now. He's the co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Hotez, good to see it. China's record case count, I have to say, seems relatively low compared to the January Omicron peak in the United States when the seven-day average of daily cases topped 800,000. This new wave is, is a huge test of China's zero COVID policy, Um, obviously shutting down everything uh, is a good way to prevent the virus from spreading. But I mean, do we even
20: know if it's necessary? Well, you know, here's the problem, Jake, the Chinese are in a tight spot. Here's why, even though more than 2 billion doses of vaccines have been distributed across China, so reasonable vaccination rates, it's with uh, two vaccines that are made locally, predominantly in China, both whole inactivated virus vaccines, a much older technology, one from Sinovac, one from Sinopharm. And even against the original lineage and the Delta variant, they weren't holding up as well as you'd like, about 50, 60% protection, much lower than um, than the mRNA vaccines we have here in the US. But against Omicron, it's really not working much at all, it seems. So they they therefore have to resort to what we call NPI, non-pharmaceutical interventions. They don't really, they can't rely on vaccinations. So when you can't rely on vaccines, you know, you go old school, and that's about all you can do. And and if you've ever been to Shanghai, we used to, I used to do a lot of work in Shanghai. We maintained a lab at the Institute of Parasitic Diseases there. It's an incredibly, you think Manhattan's crowded, you haven't seen anything like walking on the Fuzhou Road in in Shanghai. So it's an incredibly congested area. So I think they're they're in a tight spot. They're backed into a corner. And this may be the only option they have. So in the U.K.,
0: if we can just hop to that country, uh, U.K. Uh, government numbers show that the BA2 variant of Omicron accounts for eight, about 85 percent of the cases they have there. Hospitalizations and deaths there are up 22 percent and 17 percent, respectively. Cases in the U.S. have plateaued. Hospitalizations and deaths continue to drop in the U.S. Are, are you surprised that the U.S. has not seen as sharp of an increase in cases yet as they're having in the U.K.?
20: So here's the interesting thing. With both the Alpha and Delta variant in Western Europe, as that accelerated, you automatically saw all the cases go up. So when we had Alpha and Delta rising in the U.S., we knew we were in for it. And same with Omicron. With this BA2, it's a little bit different. In some European countries, BA2 is becoming dominant, yet the cases are not shooting up as much as, as in others. So there's something else going on that we don't quite understand, whether there's some partial protection uh, from Omicron against BA2 or other factors that are in play. Uh, But it's not necessarily a slam dunk that the numbers are going to accelerate as much in the U.S., even though BA2 will go up as a predominant variant. I'm pretty confident of that. I don't necessarily know that we'll see the the big, sharp increase. Um, We may, we may not, or get some kind of hybrid. So we're all kind of holding our breath and seeing what's going to happen.
0: All right, Dr. Peter Hotes, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, hundreds of acres set aside to help homeless veterans. Why that land is now being used for athletic fields while thousands of veterans are sleeping in the street. Stay with us. In our buried lead today, these are stories we think are not getting enough attention. They volunteered to serve our country, but after leaving the ranks, often after multiple combat tours, thousands of veterans are experiencing homelessness and living in the streets in Los Angeles County. In 2016, federal officials unveiled a plan to provide housing for many of these veterans, but as CNN's Nick Watt reports in the CNN investigation, in the more than six years since that promise was made, not one new housing unit has been completed. And yet another pledge this nation has made to its veterans, and then broken. In 2014, the mayor of Los Angeles made a promise.
9: Can we end
4: veterans' homelessness in this city by the end of 2015?
2: Yes!
7: Well, together, we will do just that.
1: They didn't. In 2015, there were over 4,000 homeless veterans in Los Angeles County. Latest count, not much under (laughs) 4,000. Meanwhile abutting beautiful Brentwood, one of LA's wealthiest neighborhoods, there is this. 388 acres gifted to the federal government, beginning back in the late 1800s, on one condition. That a home for disabled soldiers be thereon so located, established, constructed, and permanently maintained. A lot of the land was given by a senator and a businesswoman. Her great-great-niece, lives down the road
11: it wasn't given to anybody but veterans for a home
1: but today just a few hundred vets live here many in a nursing home run by california the federal government leases a chunk to ucla for the bruins home field another 22 acres are leased to a private school for their tennis courts track swimming pool and athletic fields i mean it is it's
9: scandalous it's, it's really kind of disgusting to see.
1: Rob Reynolds deployed to Iraq on his 18th birthday for a traumatic tour. Later spent time on the streets around here
9: waiting for PTSD treatment. It's When you see people who raise their right hand to serve our country sleeping and dying on the street and you have one of the most elite private schools in the country charging $40,000 per year per student and they have immaculate amenities and the veterans are living in squalor, It just doesn't make any sense. In
1: 2015, after a lengthy lawsuit, the VA promised transparency, vet involvement, and later produced a master plan proposing 1,200 units for homeless vets, a community. 54 existing units have been repurposed. 710 new units should be finished by now. Timelines are fluid, but none are finished.
4: That's correct. There hasn't been new construction since then.
1: It is finally underway, but the project's still tangled in red tape, utilities issues, financing issues. Private developers are now leasing the land, building the units, and they will manage them. What is to say that in 50 years, you guys don't just then turn this into luxury apartments?
12: It's 100% deed restricted. That requires that these housing units be kept affordable in perpetuity.
1: 180 units scheduled to open, By year's end,
7: we should be up with the 1200 within the next eight years,
1: should be 14 years after that master
9: plan pledge. I've dealt with quite a few veterans dying uh, right outside the gates of the V.A. If you had the right programs and the right processes in place from the beginning, those deaths would have been preventable.
1: Thousands of veterans did once live here. But in the 70s, the V.A. dedicated the campus to medical treatment, began leasing land to a car rental company, hotel laundry a bus depot.
7: Where did all that money go? For years, I believe it was stolen, parts of it, but I think some of it came in and was used in VA for some of the programs and initiatives. In
1: 2018, the guy who leased this lot was imprisoned for embezzling more than $13 million. He blew a bunch of it on fast cars.
5: How do they prove anything anyway?
1: Well, the guy at the VA he was bribing let the FBI tape their calls. That I deposit that money. Yeah, I'm speechless. In 2016, an act of Congress decreed this land can now only be leased for services that principally benefit veterans and their families. A few weeks later, the VA renewed the license for an oil company to drill here. They donate just 2.5% of revenue to veterans. And the VA signed a new 10-year lease with Brentwood School. Last year, the VA's inspector general said it violates that act of Congress because the principal purpose of this lease was to provide the Brentwood School continued use of the athletic facilities. On paper, the VA called that view erroneous. In person?
7: The arrangement with the school is uh, noncompliant, Um, It does have a benefit for veterans, not only on campus, but in the community.
1: The school pays and donates more than $2 million a year. They declined an interview but gave a statement that reads in part, Brentwood School could not be prouder of our association with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Independent third-party audits verify that Brentwood School has met or exceeded every lease obligation. One of them, veteran access to those lovely athletic facilities.
13: We've uh, heard complaints that it it takes a while to get the membership card. We've brought that to the attention of
1: Brightwood School. They said they've corrected it. In 2017, just over 1,000 vet visits, less than three per day. Last year, nearly 12 per day. More than 1,200
7: kids attend the school. I'm sure if we terminated the lease, they would take us to court.
1: And the Bruins still call this place home. Every year, UCLA pays more than $2 million in rent, as well as legal, educational and medical contributions. They claim that's fair market rate. Actually, it's about a half million dollars short. UCLA also declined a request for an interview. In 2020, in private, the VA amended UCLA's lease, added a practice field. I've listened to you on tape in a a meeting saying our advocates who are a little testy out there are going to get up in arms when they see there's another ball field being built. Why not just be transparent? We probably should have shared that. In 2019, the VA proposed spending over $4 million on a healing garden. I was distressed by, to
13: say the least.
1: Anthony Ullman is a vet, sits on the board created to oversee the VA's management. Of this land.
13: VA was proposing to spend $4 million on a garden with that many homeless veterans on literally on, on the street.
1: After decades of pressure, the VA has finally allowed some homeless vets to camp inside on their own land. About 100 now live in so called tiny homes.
4: The pandemic provided an opportunity for us to justify piloting bringing veterans on the campus. Right.
1: And those promised permanent homes? VA installs utilities.
12: They're all studio apartments.
1: But the buck is passed to those private developers to
12: finance everything else for this one building. took us about a year to assemble it and then another six months to close the financing and get shovels in the ground. Okay,
1: Would it have been quicker if the federal government just ponied up all the cash? Inevitably, but that's not
11: the reality. I personally believe that the VA and the government should... Chip in for all of this. They shouldn't expect the public to redo something that they've let fall apart. She wants to renovate the chapel. It's going to give hope that the rest of the campus will follow suit.
1: When Rob Reynolds was in Iraq, three comrades were kidnapped by insurgents he shipped out before they were found
9: dead. If I have the opportunity to not leave someone behind and do whatever I can to try to help these guys, that's that's what I want to do. This land was donated for a specific reason and it was to remain that way forever. And that's the way it needs to remain.
1: Now, the secretary of veterans affairs is expected to sign a new master plan for this site very soon. And the VA has appointed a new executive to oversee the process going forward. There's cautious optimism amongst advocates, cautious largely because of what's gone before. And there's one thing that a lot of advocates tell me just still doesn't make any sense. This land is managed by the VA's Greater Los Angeles Health Care System. The clue is in the name. Health care. They do health care. Why isn't this land, they say, handed over to a different department within the VA or a different federal department that actually deals with housing?
0: Jake. A very, very important investigation, uh, Nick Watt. Thank you so much. Um, and it really, honestly, this nation and the government of the United States, state and federal, has such a long and ignominious history of just yeah. screwing over veterans Uh, and breaking promises made to them. Google at home, if you're interested, in the 1700s. Google Pension and Lieutenant Caleb Brewster, and you can read about the very first veteran uh, that this nation screwed. Uh, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a milestone more than 80 years in the making. In our national lead, a story that's been more than 80 years in the making, but at long last, 101-year-old Merrill Cooper finally has a high school diploma. Back in 1938, in the midst of his senior year in high school at a boarding school called Storer College, Cooper had to drop out for financial reasons. His family moved from West Virginia to Philadelphia, where he had to get a job to help support the family. Storer College was established in 1865 to serve newly freed slaves. And it closed in the 1950s. It's now part of the Harper's Ferry National Historic Park. Now, Cooper had the opportunity to visit Store College in 2018. He told his family he regretted not ever having earned his high school diploma. So his family reached out to the park staff and they contacted West Virginia education officials. And in the last week or so, Cooper got his diploma. Congratulations, sir. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to join CNN Plus, our brand new streaming service, where you can watch, among many other shows, our new series where we interview authors in our book club. It's going to be available at midnight Eastern tonight. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer